Within each of us, there is an intense need to feel that we belong. This feeling of unity and togetherness comes through the warmth of a smile, a handshake, or a hug, through laughter and unspoken demonstrations of love. It comes in the quiet, reverent moments of soft conversation and in listening. get started with a little interaction, okay? So this is what I want you to do. Are you ready? All right, you guys, some of you are there. Some of you, we're going to have the ushers bring in some coffee, get you guys going. All right, this is what I want you to do. I want you to think about, if you had to describe Jesus in three or four words, what would those words be? What would you pick? I want you to go ahead right now, turn to someone next to you, and uh, just tell them, this is, what I, this is how I would describe Jesus. If I only have three or four words, this is how I'm describing him. Go. All right, all right, I'm hearing the rumble. People are participating. This is pretty good. All right. I bet as you have done this, as you're thinking about this, I bet all your descriptors are great. I'm sure they're all true and fantastic. I'm curious, how many of you selected the word smart? One time Jesus was asked a question. Somebody came to him and said, Jesus, what is the most important commandment? Jesus, what's the most important rule I should follow? And what you need to know is the guy who was asking this, he's a religious expert, and he's actually asking this question to pick a fight with Jesus, which to me, I think is dumb. Why would you ever pick a fight with someone who could do miracles, right? Why would you pick a fight with someone who could turn water into wine? You want that guy to be your friend. Now, the reason he asked this question is because he's trying to create a scenario in which, where he could cause Jesus to look less than, where he can cause Jesus to look less credible, less trustworthy, to the crowd. And what I love about Jesus is Jesus ignores the man's ulterior motive and he just answers the question. And I'm suggesting that maybe we should do the same thing today. Let's ignore the motive and let's just pretend this question was asked with kindness and curiosity. Jesus, what is the most important thing that I should do with my life? Regardless of the motive, that's the question. And this is how Jesus responded. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. And so today we're going to zoom in and we're going to double click on the second part. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I think it's possible to disagree with Jesus. I think it's possible to dismiss Jesus. I think it's very difficult to deny his genius, especially in this subject of loving our neighbors as ourselves. What does it say about the thinking of someone? What does it say about the character of someone who would just slough off these words? Can you be a reasonable person? Can you be reasonable and be casual about these words and the person who said them? And the reason that I ask this, the reason I frame it that way, pick any social issue, Pick any political issue. Pick any world conflict. Can we think of anything that would not be massively improved and made better if we just did that? Even if we just went halfway and we didn't even love each other, we're just like, well, we'd be decent to each other. Is there anything that wouldn't be better? Think about things that have ripped our social fabric, things that have left people feeling broken. 
What would happen if people were convinced that the people who disagreed with them, the people who were on the other side of the issue of them, what if people were convinced they care about me? It would do nothing less. It would do nothing less than make this world a better place for every person bar none. Dallas Willard was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. Uh, He's also remembered as a beloved Christian author and thinker. Uh, He was no stranger to being around world-class minds. I want you to hear what he had to say. Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart. He is not just nice, he is brilliant. He is the smartest man who ever lived. If you have questions today about the reliability of the Bible or the trustworthiness of the Christian faith, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad you're watching this service. Uh, Keep asking those questions. But today I want to ask all of us a question. What would happen if we embraced Jesus as the smartest person in the room when it came to the subject of loving our neighbors as ourselves? Wouldn't it make your neighborhood or your apartment building better? I mean, wouldn't it serve to make all your social arenas a better experience for you and for other people involved? Doesn't it have the potential of positively changing the climate in your workplace? I mean, doing this right here, what Jesus talked about, loving our neighbor as ourself, it would make the world a better place. It would quite literally change the world, and it would change you and me in the process. One of the things that I find stunning about what Jesus had to say is there's nothing about the passage of time, there's nothing about the progress of technology, nothing about social evolution that does anything to diminish the brilliance and the urgency of these words. Love your neighbor as yourself. What would not be made better if we did that? The Apostle Paul was a man who was transformed by Jesus. If you do not know the story of the Apostle Paul. You owe it to you to know the details of his story. He hated Jesus. He despised Christians. He was a state-sponsored persecutor and even killer of Christians. And something changed, and he became a follower of Jesus and a leader of Christians. And that transition in his life cost him everything. He lost it all. He did gain one thing. He gained phenomenal amount of influence for the movement of the gospel. And he's remembered. He's remembered as one of the top 15 most influential people in all of human history. This is how the words of Jesus grabbed him. He said, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. He'd say, this is everything. And so for me, this really ignites a question. Does this mean that we can view everything in the Bible and the Christian life through this lens? Everything we read and everything we experience in our life, should we be viewing it through the lens of love your neighbor as yourself? As I was getting ready for this new message series, I had a kind of startling realization. Uh, Over uh, the course of my pastoral career, I've had the privilege of serving on staff as a pastor with a handful of churches. I've also been able to interview with quite a few uh, churches. I've even interviewed with churches on multiple continents. And and the reason I share that with you is because when a church is interviewing somebody who they're considering to possibly join them as a pastor, they're trying to get a sense of who you are. Do you believe what Jesus taught? Do you live what Jesus taught? Now, hopefully, you know, that's a settled question for you guys by now, but that's a good question to kind of figure out. And in all the contexts in which I've been interviewed, No church has ever asked me, do you love your neighbors? No one's even asked me, do you even know your neighbors? Never come up. 
And not only have I been interviewed, I've been in multi, I mean, more small groups than I can count and Bible studies where we intended to be vulnerable with each other and ask each other uh, really um, real vulnerable questions for the purpose of accountability and encouragement. I don't think I've ever been asked, Rick, how are you doing with loving your neighbors? Do you know your neighbors? And I'm not asking that question because I'm wearing my favorite pair of judgy pants today or I'm kind of looking down on people. I have interviewed people who wanted to be a pastor. I have been the guy asking the questions in small groups and in Bible studies. I don't think I've ever asked anybody, how you doing loving your neighbor? Do you know your neighbors? What does that say about me? Does this say anything about us? I'm not gonna make assumptions about anybody else. I can only speak for me. And I think there are probably seasons in my life where I am guilty of taking the greatest commandment and treating it like the okayest commandment. Is yeah, Jesus, you said this is great. I'm treating it like it's pretty okay. And in our pursuit of getting ready for this and really taking Jesus seriously, some of the pastors read a book called The Art of Neighboring. It's written by these two guys, Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon. And in their book, they said something that really grabbed a hold of me. We all need to get back to the basics of what he, Jesus, commanded. Love God and love others. Everything else is secondary. And so this message series and today is about just getting back to the basics of love God and love other people. And so today we're going to hunker down in an exchange that Jesus had with another uh, expert in religious law. And in this conversation, this guy starts off by asking Jesus a very similar question to the one we read about in Matthew 22. And this is how that exchange went. In Luke chapter 10, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? How many of you have ever been told there's no such thing in a bad question? Anybody ever been told that? I'm not necessarily going to try and dispute that today. I am going to say we should put an asterisk next to that. And this is why. The kinds of questions we ask determine the kinds of answers we get. The kind of questions we ask determine the kinds of answers we get. Do I have permission to be a tiny bit blunt? Do you guys give me permission? Okay. Be careful and pay attention to what you ask and why you ask it. Pay attention to what you ask and why you ask it. The questions we ask have a tendency to reveal what we're aiming at. Do we ask the kind of questions that are open and designed to invite in truth that maybe we have not considered before? Or do we ask questions that are narrow, questions that are designed to protect our opinions, protect our point of view, to protect our preconceived ideas? When we ask questions, it reveals our current level of understanding. That's something that a question does. But the questions we ask also reveal how much we actually want to understand. And I think it's fair. I think it's probably wise for us to ask ourselves this question. What kind of questions do I ask? Why do I ask these kinds of questions? The guy that Jesus was talking to, 
he was telling himself a story. And the story that he was telling himself is, I am a good person. And the reason that he was convinced that he was a good person was because of his religious lifestyle and his acts of devotion that he had stacked up over the span of years. And so he asked a question designed to protect that narrative. And even though he's asking a question, you tell me, do you think he's in the posture of a learner? Or is it the posture of someone who's on the defense? And Jesus masterfully engages this guy, not in a way that ramps up the conflict, but diffuses it and draws the guy in by telling a story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Jesus is telling a fictional story, but it's realistic fiction. The road that he's describing going down to Jericho, it's a real road. This is a picture of that road. And this is a place that people would have known. It was notorious. It was dangerous. Being attacked and left for dead is the kind of thing that could have happened to anyone, especially if you were traveling alone. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. I want to show you a picture of this road again. Do you guys see this little tiny strip right here? That's the road. Wherever you stand, you are standing on both sides of the road. It took effort. It took intentionality to scooch by this guy who's wounded to step over the guy who's wounded. And let's pay attention to, let's take note of who are these people who could not be bothered to help the man in need? A priest and a Levite, two people who are experts in the law that Jesus and this guy are talking about. Jesus is a master communicator. He's great at telling stories. And we've got to ask ourselves, why did he construct the story this way? What is he trying to communicate to us? And it can't be that truth isn't important. It can't be that things like God's commands are unimportant. We've already seen that Jesus elevated them, and he connected it to eternal life. Would you consider with me that we live in a culture that has a tendency to equate virtue with right belief? Virtue with right belief. We live in a culture where we get to maintain social credibility by affirming the right things and denouncing the bad things. We actually demonstrate our virtue in our culture today. We signal our virtue by how energetically we affirm the right things and denounce the bad things. And if that bothers you about our culture, it bothers me too. But it should be, I mean, just to be fair, let's point out, Our culture is just now catching up with what's been true of religious culture for all of human history. It's fairly easy. It's just easy to equate virtue with right belief. And at least part of the reason that Jesus is telling this story is he's trying to blow up that thinking. He's trying to obliterate it. Would you take note of this? Truth without love is bankrupt. A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast with two authors who I really like, two men who are really keen thinkers, and they were debating in a friendly way this question. Is the Christian faith primarily a belief system or a value system? Primarily a belief system or a value system? What do you think? And I was just enthralled in the conversation. It was a lot of fun to listen to. When it was over, I just thought, that's not a great question. 
Because it's not either or. We could just as easily flip this statement around and say love without truth is bankrupt. Jesus elevated both right belief and virtue without backing off of either, and neither should we. Jesus continues with this story, and what he says next is, but a Samaritan. Do you guys remember watching Saturday morning cartoons? Anybody else love watching cartoons as a kid? You remember how we always knew the difference between the good guys and the bad guys in a cartoon? And the reason we instantly knew who the bad guys were is because they were shaded a bit more darkly and the kind of music would come on that was a bit ominous or negative to let us know these are the bad guys. And the reason, reason we could quickly know the difference between good and bad is because the makers of the cartoon were manipulating us. In the same way, Jesus' audience was manipulated by their racism and by their prejudice. When they heard Jesus say Samaritan, they would have instantly responded in the same way we did as kids when the bad guy came on the scene. If the other guys ignored him, this guy's probably going to kick him. I mean, this is, this, is, this is not somebody you want to see coming. Because in Jesus' day, Samaritans were viewed as racially inferior and religiously suspect. But notice how Jesus tells the story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Those of you who work in the medical field or those of you who have any experience with being a first responder, you have a leg up on understanding this passage. You probably understand this passage better than I do. One of the problems with equating virtue with right belief is that it stays too abstract. And Jesus is talking about a kind of virtue. Jesus is talking about love that's much more up close. It's much messier than that. Jesus is illustrating love in a way that it will get your hands and your clothes dirty with somebody else's blood. Jesus is illustrating a love that's the kind of love that you will jump in with both feet into the urgency of somebody's pain and not flinch and not back off. Jesus is talking about a love that sees, hang with me here. Jesus is talking about a kind of love that sees wealth as a means to an end, not an end unto itself. And that would not have been lost on this expert in religious law. Remember, he came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you're an expert. What do you think? How do you read it? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in that day, the way that that law was taught, and this guy probably taught it this way to other people, loving God with your strength does not mean your physical capacity. It doesn't mean all the energy you can muster. It means, and this is the way that it was taught, loving God with your resources, leveraging your resources and your finances to serve God's purposes. And Jesus tells this story to talk about a kind of love that holds wealth and financial resources like this so we can hold on to people like this. Wealth and finances like this so we can hold on to people like this. And remember this guy asked the question that he asked because he wanted to show that he was a good person. And his narrative of I'm a good person hinged on other people seeing him as a good person. And I don't want to get in a debate over who's a good person and who isn't. Was this guy a good person? Sure. But as long as it didn't cost him anything. 
And so Jesus turns to him and asks a piercing question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now, the expert in the law replied, the one. He couldn't even say Samaritan because of his racism, because of his xenocentrism. He couldn't even say that person's identity, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And in this encounter, when Jesus turns and says, who is a neighbor? Jesus is saying, bro, you're asking the wrong question. It's not who are your neighbors. The question is, are you a neighbor? And that's going to be the anthem of this series. This is going to be our drumbeat over and over again over the next couple of weeks is this. This is our series thesis. The real question isn't who is your neighbor. It's are you a neighbor? See, the wrong question is who do I have to love? The right question is, am I loving? The wrong question is, who do I have to be a servant toward? The right question is, am I a servant? The wrong question is, who are the people that I should be merciful toward? The right question is, am I merciful? The wrong question is, how many people or who are the people that I need to be generous with? The right question is, am I generous? The jarring genius of Jesus in his interaction with this guy is he makes it about identity. It's about who you are. Is that the story you're telling yourself? Because when you see yourself as a neighbor, you don't need rules telling you what to do. You might need wisdom, but you don't need rules. When there's a need, you serve the need because that's what love does. That's what a neighbor does. So let's get really practical. For the next couple of minutes, let's get super practical. I don't know about you guys, super rare for me to encounter somebody bleeding in a ditch. Just hasn't happened yet. The people who are around their needs and their hurts that they might have, the things that I might have an opportunity to be helpful with, it's just not as obvious. So how do I know what to do? How do you know what to do? The guys who wrote this book, The Art of Neighboring, it was published in 2012, so that means it was written over 10 years ago. And they said this is just common problems that people have. Isolation, fear, and misunderstanding. And they wrote that over a decade ago. You think this is better or worse? Are we more connected or are we more divided? Are we more confident or are we more uncertain? Are we getting better at really understanding people who see the world differently from us? Or is that not getting better? And when this describes how we feel, isn't it true? This is at least true of me. Isn't it true that we experience those as internal wounds? And when I feel wounded on the inside, that's when I armor up on the outside. Can anybody else relate to that? So how do we be the kind of people where we earn the trust and we earn the credibility for people to invite us into their lives so we can kind of know what's going on and we can honor what Jesus said, go and do likewise. I want to give us, real quick, three just uber, super practical ideas. I'm calling it Neighboring 101. Number one, learn people's names. I feel a bit insecure making this a point in the message because after three services, it's impossible for me to remember everybody's names and I'm afraid someone's going to test me in the lobby. Give me grace. But this is how I'm applying this in my own life. This is how I'm thinking about it. Do I know the names of my neighbors? How many of them can I name? Are there people who are kind of showing up more often in my routines? Do I know their names? How about this? 
Do I ever avoid engaging someone socially because I can't remember their name? Anybody else? All right. Again, these guys, Jay and, and Dave in their book, they, ask, they make this statement. We're not learning anything new, are we? We're just reminding ourselves of things that are incredibly important. To love someone, it actually helps to know their name. Let's start there. Let's just start there. Let's crank up the heat a little bit. Number two, don't schedule yourself into disobedience. Anybody ever find yourself thinking, listen, I'd love to be there for the people in my neighborhood or more of the people who are in my life. I, I just don't have the time. Anybody? Anybody else feel that way? Anybody else feel like, when I have the time, I just don't have the energy to kind of show up with my best self. Can anybody relate to that? Years ago, I was a very, very young, very green youth pastor, and I had a volunteer who was twice my age, super dedicated, kind of guy you can rely on, very helpful. And he was there at the church all the time, helping me out, doing great stuff. It was wonderful. And then I learned that things at home weren't that wonderful. If it's okay for me to say it like this, he was showing up for Jesus and doing good stuff, but he wasn't necessarily showing up for what his wife and his kids needed. And I had to say to him, go home. You need to go home. And the story that he was telling himself is, I'm a good man. Look at all that I do. He didn't realize this. It is okay. It's totally okay to clear stuff off of our schedule just so we have time to be with people. Here's a third thing, and this might feel a little abstract. Be careful how you cluster. I'm going to use a couple of images to help us kind of wrap our minds around this. Pick any community setting that has people, like Rochester, for example. We've got all kinds of people in Rochester, but this isn't how, how it typically looks. It's really the experience of it is more like this. We all have a tendency to gravitate towards smaller clusters, don't we? It's just natural. It's normal. We, we cluster up with people who we like and who we think like us and who are most like us. We have a tendency to cluster up around people with whom we're most comfortable. We just all have this natural tendency to develop affinity groups. And if you see that in your own life, if you've experienced that, I'm not, you don't, shouldn't feel bad about yourself. This is natural. This is normal. But if that's the case, if this is what we do, we just kind of cluster up with people who are like us, then that means this is going to be our common experience. The people who are closest to us in proximity are the people who are most like us culturally. The people who are closest to us in proximity are the people who are most like us socioeconomically. The people who are closest to us in proximity are the kinds of people that are the easiest kinds of people for us to love. Are you with me? And what's natural is to uncritically begin to define our neighbors as those who are already in our cluster. And this kind of thing happens in any community setting. And this explains why middle school was traumatizing for so many of us. This happens in cities. It happens in workplaces. Believe it or not, it can happen in churches. And if you follow Jesus... He's going to lead you to love the people who are in your cluster. And he's going to lead you to move out and love the people who are in other clusters. So I want us to, let's land here. Let's make this our focus today. Neighboring is about identity. 
not proximity. It's about who we are, not who's around us. When Jesus told this story, it was more than a clever story to make a point. It did that, but it's better than that. And as we look at this story, we're, I'm pretty sure, fairly confident that Jesus wasn't want us to, wanting us to try and figure out, or, are we like one of the people who ignored the guy, or are we like the guy who would help the guy? Jesus is the Good Samaritan. And we are all the guy who's broken and busted up in the ditch in need of help. And he is the one who is despised and misunderstood and rejected, who, come, who came to lovingly, humbly, generously, and surprisingly serve us in our need. I want to go back to the original passage we read, Matthew 22. Jesus talked about the command of loving God, loving people. And he said, the law and prophets hang on these two commands. Everything you read in God's word hangs, hangs on that. And it's not just everything we read that hangs on that. Jesus hung on that and hung for that. When he said it all hangs on that, he used the exact same word that was used to describe someone who hung on a cross. And Jesus hung on the cross to fulfill what it means to love God and to love other people. And he hung on the cross to pay the price for our failure to love God and to love other people. And when we trust in him, he forgives us of that failure. He includes us and he makes us brand new people in him. If you take away just one thing from this message, let it be this. Jesus was a neighbor to us. And we trust in him. He makes us neighbors.